So, a quick recap of Hosea. Uh, Hosea is a book in the Old Testament. Uh, it's also, or he is also, was a prophet. Uh, he lived and prophesied in the northern kingdom of Israel around 750 BC. Uh, usually, prophets are given things to say, right? They speak on behalf of God, but sometimes uh, they are given things to do. And Hosea was, was given, he was given something that was quite shocking, even today. Uh, God commanded him to, to marry uh, an unfaithful woman, uh, to marry a, a prostitute, essentially, which is what he did. Uh, Hosea found a prostitute, local prostitute named Gomer, and married her. And the purpose of this union was because God wanted to communicate something to his people that uh, he felt was best uh, communicated through something visual. He wanted to help them to understand that they were being unfaithful, but that he, as their God, was going to continue to be faithful to them. And so this picture of Hosea loving this woman who was adulterous during their marriage was a picture that, that they desperately needed to know. We saw all of that in Hosea chapter 1 to 3. Since that time, 4, 5, 6, 7, all those chapters before Christmas, uh, we looked more deeply into the nature of human unfaithfulness and the nature of God's faithfulness. And today, chapter 8 is no different. As I told you at the beginning, Hosea keeps coming back to the same patterns, the same themes, just looking at it from different angles. And so today we're going to look once again at what's going on in the lives of Israel over 2,000 years ago, and yet once again, we're going to see uh, things that we need to hear. Uh, once again, it's going to be like looking into a mirror because human nature has not changed that much at all. The people back then, uh, they were in some real trouble. Uh, from God's point of view, they were spiritually empty. They, they were politically threatened by the, the empire of Assyria that was all around them. They were morally corrupt. Uh, they were far from God in every way, but the people at the time, they actually thought things were going pretty well. If you talk to an Israelite on the street, how are things going? How's the country? Ah, it's going not bad, they would say. They were very self-assured. They were very self-confident. Ultimately, as we're going to see, they were self-deceived, which is always a killer combination. Uh, I remember listening to a discussion a few years ago about uh, church leadership. And so this was some different people who had done research in the area, and they were talking about uh, leadership failing, uh, lead pastors who have burnout or moral failings or they abuse their position. And a consultant was there who'd done a lot of research in this area of leadership. And so the question was asked, how, how can we prevent this from happening? If we're a church looking for a, a new lead pastor, what kind of person should we pick so that this doesn't happen? We don't want this to, to keep happening. And, and the answer was, I think, really interesting. They said, look, there's one main quality, one thing that you need to look for in any leader and that quality is self-awareness. Self-awareness. Uh, no matter how gifted they are, not gifted they are, self-awareness is the thing that you need to hopefully prevent this from happening. I mean, you need other skills and abilities, but if you get a leader who's incredibly gifted but not self-aware, uh, not, not interested in looking at his or her weaknesses, it's just a matter of time before those sin tendencies bubble to the surface and it negatively impacts the ministry and the people. This, this is true for all manner of leaders and really all of us. If we don't have insight into the things within us that are potentially going to cause great hardship, then, then we are lost. If we lack insight, if we lack a willingness to be examined, then it's, our downfall is coming. We, we just haven't got there yet. And this is how Hosea starts chapter 8. In verse 1, 
he, he gives an ominous sign that there is a downfall that is coming, destruction that is coming. And uh, let's look to it. Here's verse one. He says, set the trumpets to your lips, the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of, of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. So he's saying uh, vultures are circling over Israel. And if you know vultures, they only circle when there's someone who is dead or almost dead, which is not a good sign. In fact, if you remember from our summer series, uh, we had a series called Things Jesus Said. And here was one of the things he said, where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. That's the nature of vultures. They're looking for, for dead meat. And so no matter how well Israel thought that things were going, right? No matter how self-assured uh, they felt, the situation in, in reality was quite dire. And death and destruction was on the way. So I'm going to read the whole chapter. And then we are going to look at it in two main sections. Uh, the people's problem and then God's solution. So here is the rest of chapter 8 of Hosea. God's word to his people and to us. He says this, To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, we know you. Israel spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman has made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken into pieces. For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flour. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey, wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. The king and the princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities and shall devour her strongholds. So, not a very uplifting word to the people of God. You'll notice actually there's sort of four different words that's used there for the people. There's Israel, there's Ephraim, Samaria, Judah, all talking about the people who in a sense say, look, we're your people, God. So what is their problem? The problem can be stated in really two ways. Here's the first. Uh, they thought that they knew God. That's essentially the, the, the main problem here. They thought they knew God, but they didn't. And we see this stated explicitly in the text. Verse 2, they say to God, to me they cry, my God, we Israel, we know you. Right, God, you know us, right? We're your people. But if you look in verse 14, God says, for Israel has forgotten his maker. They had a sense that they were connected with God and in intimacy a relationship with God, but actually they were totally disconnected from him. Which is one of the most chilling realities that the Bible points out about human beings. 
that sometimes there are people who think that they are close with God, who are at peace with God, saving relationship with God, but are not close at all. It happens over and over again in the Old Testament. You'll see times when the Israelites are going out to battle and they're like, God's got us, he's with us. Because in the past, he's you know, defeated so many armies and they just think that he's always gonna be there and, and they get destroyed. It also happens in the New Testament. Jesus spent a lot of his time trying to convince people uh, who thought that they were close with God that they weren't actually close with the Lord. Uh, John 8 is one example. He's speaking to a group of Jews who are, who are pretty sure their, their relationship with God is rock solid. Here's what they say, uh, 8, 841. They say, we have one father, even God, right? They're saying, God is our father. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, <clears throat> you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. I think we'd agree. It's a big difference between having God as your father or the devil as your father. And the question that they should have been asking, we should be asking is, how does that happen? How does it happen? There's a group of people think that they're close with the Lord and yet actually their, their father is, is the devil or simply we're, we're not close with the Lord. Well, it comes down to a lack of insight, a lack of self-awareness, assumptions that are being made. Now, Israel, for their part, they had a lot of history with, with Yahweh, with God. And so they assumed that, that they were just close with him. I mean, he had called them. He'd established them as a nation. He'd saved them many times. And so they kind of thought, man, no matter how we live, God is going to be on our side, that this relationship is going to be tight. And God's trying to say to them, but that, that's not how it works. And, and Jesus in the New Testament says the same thing. Uh, look at Matthew 7. You see some similar assumptions here being made. Uh, Jesus is saying to a group of people, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name? And do mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The people assumed they were close with Jesus. Because they had done all of these things in his name. But the truth that's being communicated here in the words of Jesus and back in the Old Testament. Is that just circumstantial connections. They don't establish a genuine relationship. Just having a history with God. Uh, having some sense of identity, right? calling yourself one of God's people, even serving him, that doesn't necessarily equal a true relationship with the Lord. Just like simply being married for 20 years doesn't mean that you have a genuine, intimate connection and relationship with your spouse. You can live with someone for a long time, just be in proximity to them and not actually be close in, in relationship. And that often happens with people in God. It's, today, it still happens. Just because you're born in a Christian family, just because you would identify as a Christian or have thought of yourself that way, just because maybe you come here on a Sunday or, or do certain things to serve the Lord, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are connected with Jesus in a meaningful and intimate way. For myself, uh, the period of my life uh, after I became a Christian, when I was farthest from God, uh, was when I was working at a church. Uh, I came to faith in my teens. I started working at Willingdon Church in the children's ministry when I was 18, 19. And so that meant that I was running day camps 
organizing Sunday school, writing lessons for kids about helping them to understand Jesus. But I, myself, I was far from the Lord. Uh, there was no evidence of, of a real heart for God. And that happened because on the outside, things looked okay. Like I wasn't overtly sinning or, you know, people couldn't see anything. I, I took my sin and I, I kept it hidden. So everyone thought, man, he's serving kids. How bad could he be? That was the worst thing for me. And, and for me, I thought, How, look, look at what I'm doing. I wasn't interested in actually examining my heart in a deep way. I was just kind of coasting because everything seemed, seemed fine. And if God hadn't, through his sovereign hand and the conviction of his spirit, gotten a hold of me, I, looking back, I think I could easily have been one of those people who, before it was too late, realized that I was far from the Lord. I didn't even realize it. So the, the question that we should be thinking when we read passages like this in Hosea or words from Jesus is, how, how do we know then? Like, how do we know if we have a genuine relationship with the Lord? How do we know if we, if we truly know him? And the Bible gives us an answer. Actually, really clear, really, really simple answer. Uh, the Bible says, uh, basically, we just need to look at the fruit of our life. That, that's how we know. That's how we have some sense of assurance that our faith is real. Uh, here's what Jesus says uh, just before that part about people coming to him and he says, I don't know you. Just before that, in Matthew 7, verse 17, he says this. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And he's speaking specifically there about false teachers, those people who seem good, but what they're saying, you can look at the fruit and tell that's, that's bad. But it's applicable for all of us. That's, that's the thing. The, the Bible never points to the past to give us assurance about our faith. Never says, remember back in camp when you made that decision? Remember when you, you said you were Christian around the campfire and it felt great? Remember your baptism? Remember that great worship experience? It, it never, those are good things, but it never says look back to those things. It says, what, what's going on right now? Like, like what, is, what is in your life? Is there fruit? It, are, you, are you interested in the things of God? Like really interested? Are you sensitive to, to the spirit of God? Like, are you, are you really wanting the spirit to, to convict you of sin and to identify it and to turn? Is there a pattern of that, of confessing sin? Are you reading the word of God and submitting to it? Not just kind of mechanically getting through it, but actually looking for where it, it's pressing into you. And are we praying? Are we praying with, with joy and with passion? See, if the Israelites had been paying attention, they would have seen a lot of evidence of bad fruit in their life. Um, for all the troubles, for example, for all the troubles that are going on, you know, going on, there's an empire that might come and destroy them. You, you don't see very much evidence of any prayer in their lives. Uh, in this chapter or many other chapters, they don't seem to be a people of prayer. Uh, they seem to be at peace with the sin in their life. They don't seem too bothered by all the commandments that they're breaking, all the idols that they're making. And look what it says about the law of God. This I think is interesting. Verse 12. <clears throat> God says, were I to write for him, for Israel, right, my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. So he's saying to these people or people of the law, no matter how many times I write down the law, if I showed it all, they would look at what is essentially the Bible at the time and they would be like, that seems kind of strange. That's, that's bad fruit. If you're someone who takes the Bible and thinks certain parts of it are 
man, pretty outdated, like not really applicable. Like, I mean, I read certain parts, the Psalms, they're kind of cool, but other parts, I'm not really sure. If you treat the Bible like it's sort of bizarre and you're not really sure how it applies to your life, that's, that's evidence of something that is twisted within you. It's, it's evidence of a heart and a spirit that is not in line with, with what God wants for us, what he's revealed to us. This is the people's problem, that they thought they knew God, but in fact, what their lives are showing is that they were actually far from him. And, and it's the same challenge for us today. But there was another problem, and the second problem made the first problem even worse. So here's, here's problem number two. They thought... <clears throat> They thought they had everything under control, but they didn't. Now, the thing to understand about this mindset, we might call it self-sufficiency, right? Human self-sufficiency, I got it. I got it figured out. It's okay. The thing about this is that it's like breathing to us as human beings. It's the natural inclination of our heart. In, in Eden, that's what it was. God said this, but yeah, I think I got it figured out. I think I know the right way forward. And this passage is filled with examples of the Israelites um, ways that they had stopped depending on God and now were depending on themselves. They set up their own rulers. We see in, in verse four, right? They made their own kings. They made their own princes. This is true in the history of Israel. At a certain point, they said, God, you know, we'd really love our own king, one that we can choose. They created their own religion, essentially. They, they kept God, but then they added other pagan deities, Baal, idols, places of worship, right? They kind of made this own thing that they kind of, they liked it, right? This works for us, God. They hired uh, help from the other nations. They made uh, allegiances. They went to Assyria, who was going to destroy them. At certain parts in the Old Testament, what the people of God would do would get on their knees, say, Lord, please protect us. This empire is far bigger than us. This time they said, you know what? We could probably work out a deal. Let's go talk to them. We see that in verses 9 and 10. And uh, verse 14, they established their own comfort and security. It says, for Israel has built palaces Judah has multiplied fortified cities. That's comfortable. I'd love a palace, right? Fortified walls, that's, that makes you feel secure. Kind of a, a lot more than God. I can't really see him, but a big wall, that makes, that makes me feel very secure. They had all these ways that they had established things that would help them. They got to the point where they didn't, they didn't really need the Lord in the way that they had before. And they felt like everything was going fine. That, that's, that's the thing of it. Again, if you talk to them, they would say everything is going pretty well. It's going okay. I mean, there's challenges, but what we got thing, everything is fine. I don't know if in the Hebrew there's the word fine, but that's what I think would be coming out of their mouths because that's what comes out of our mouths, right? Think of how many times, you wouldn't even think about it, how things are going, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's always, it's always fine. We can be in the car driving to the emergency room with a flesh wound, bleeding out, and someone will call us. We'll put it on speakerphone. Hey, how's it going? How's it going? It's fine. It's good. Where are you going? To the hospital. <laughs> but I think it's going to be fine. Because I got it, right? That's our mindset as human beings, that we, we know what we need. That's, that's what self-sufficiency means. We have everything under control. Uh, we know what we need. We know how to cope. We know how to make it. The reason that this is so pervasive is... Uh, partly because it's, it's the twisted nature within us, but also because it, it kind of works. That's the problem with it. Uh, from the world's point of view, this, this is really good. I mean, we are applauded when we are people who pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? Bear down, grit it out, make something of ourselves. And it, and it kind of seems to work, 
right? For the Israelites, uh, when they woke up in the morning, it's not like everything was on fire. It's not like, I mean, the army wasn't there yet. They had a job. They had, they had festivals. They had feasts. They had crops. They had, it, was, it was life. Things were going okay. But it wasn't really okay. And they couldn't see it. Self-sufficiency and self-deception, they go really well together. And that's part of the problem. And this is what God is trying to reveal to his people back then and, and to us. Uh, what God says about the Israelites is very different. He doesn't say everything is fine. I'll just, just, I won't put it up on the screen. I'll just read through a few verses. Verse two, he says, Israel has transgressed my covenant, rebelled against me, spurned the good. None, none of that is good. Verse four, they made idols for their own destruction. Verse seven, the standing grain has no heads, no flour. So they're, they're growing crops and he's saying there's no sustenance. And then he says, even if there was, someone else is gonna come on and devour it. Verse eight, Israel will be swallowed up, a useless vessel among the nations. None of it is good. But God doesn't just show the ineffectiveness of the self-sufficiency. He doesn't just say, look, actually, this is, this is all a house of cards that's gonna fall down. He gives a few insights into the deeper flaws, like, like why this is the case. And, and I'll give you one of them, verse five. <clears throat> verse five, he just says this. How long will they be incapable of innocence? I think the word incapable there is really interesting. It's kind of the key. It helps us to understand why self-sufficiency is such a lie. Because we all think the real, the problem, here's what we think. The problem in our life is just that people won't do what we want them to do, right? That we can't get, like we don't have enough power or money or freedom or whatever it is to make life the way that we want. If we had those things and the people in our lives would just do what we're telling them to do, then everything would be great. That's the biggest frustration, right? That we can't live the life that we know we could live if we could orchestrate and organize it. But the problem, what God is saying is that's not the problem and that that isn't a recipe for joy. Okay, freedom for the sinful human being is not lead to abundant life. Freedom leads to misery and death because in our heart of hearts, we are corrupt and because if we have more freedom, more resources, more, we're, we're incapable of innocence. We're, it, it's going to come out. It's just going to come out more and more. The more money we have, the more freedom we have, the just more expressions of our sin. And if you want to see evidence of this, just think, think back to some of the decisions you have made where you, like, you made the decision. You thought about it in your wisdom, in your, you planned it out. No one coerced you. You're just like, this, this is the best way forward. And think of those times where it went horrible. There's a lot of them where you, you messed up a lot. You hurt people. That's, that is the kind of thing that we should be thinking when someone gives us more freedom, gives us more money. We think, how am I going to mess this up now? I've just got, I'm going to make more people upset. I'm going to hurt more people, whatever it is. That's what God is getting, getting at. The Israelites, they were thinking, hey, this is going better, right? It feels like we're more in control. We feel more self-assured. It was nice relying on God, but it was hard because we didn't, couldn't see him. We didn't really know exactly what he would do. But when we're in control, we know exactly what's going to happen. We see the walls. We see the palaces. What we really need is not more freedom to be ourselves, to live out our lives. What we need is, is help to change ourselves. What we need is, is some way for us to actually be capable of innocence, to be capable of living a life that actually honors the Lord 
that actually loves people well, that actually does the things that God says is best and leads to a life of joy and peace. But we can't do it on our own. And, and we're very confused about this. So the problem, the problem of these people, right, that they think they know God, that they think they have everything under control, this is our problem, in case we weren't clear about that. Our, our problem is that some of us think we know God, but we don't. Some of us think we have everything under control, but we don't. And, and we can't see it because we aren't self-aware enough and we aren't spiritually enlightened enough. There's evidence. Like if we're honest, yeah, things aren't going as, but at the core of it, we still think, man, I probably got this. And what God is trying to say over and over again is, do you really have this? Here's his answer, by the way. If we get to the point of realizing maybe there is a problem, and you're wondering, what is the solution? Here's God's solution for the people back then and for us today. Two parts. The first, loving destruction. Loving destruction. There are some places in the text where you can see the people are destroying themselves. Right? They have idols for their own destruction. They, they sow uh, the wind. They get the whirlwind. That, that is true. But there's other parts where clearly it's God who's doing the destroying. Verse 5, he says, my anger burns against them. Verse 6, the calf of Samaria, this golden calf they made, is broken to pieces. He's going to destroy it. But verse 14 is, I think, the clearest. He says, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied, fortified cities, so I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. Just think about that for a moment. This is not poetic. It's not figurative. It, there's parts in Hosea where it's like imagery. That's not what this is. Uh, there really were fortified cities in Israel. There were 46 of them. They really were a source of security for the people. When anyone attacked, they'd go to those cities. And all of those cities really were destroyed by the Assyrian army when God sent them in to conquer his people. They pulled down the walls. They burned the buildings. They destroyed the palaces. Everything was gone. The people were taken off into exile. In fact, when they came back years later, they couldn't even find one stone on top of another. That was the extent of the destruction. And, and what I think... This is what I think would be helpful for us. If you put yourself in the mindset, like if you imagine yourself as one of God's people back then, as the armies were coming in, wouldn't you think that this was a bit harsh? Like honestly, God, I, okay, I get it. We get it. We, we messed up again. We got wrapped up into ourselves again. But, but do we need, does it need to be this devastating? Like, like I, we're in sin. Yes, Lord, but you have to destroy everything. Imagine them leaving Israel. Looking back, just everything is wiped out. Everything is burned. Everything they built is all destroyed. You can imagine them saying, did it really have to be this, to this extent? And I think the clear answer is yes. Yes, it did. It did. Not for reasons of punishment. Listen, not because God wanted to stick it to his people who were hard-hearted. It's not that. It's for reasons of discipline. See, the problem with leaving walls standing or palaces is that at some point people are going to come back and they're going to look at them and they're going to think, hey, this looks pretty good. We should, we should rebuild this. We, we should go back to that. Remember how good it felt to have those walls up? Remember how good it felt to have those palaces? We're going to rebuild something and again, the center will be empty and they'll go back into the lifestyle that it was before. God wants to make very, very clear that that kind of life, that kind of faith, that kind of mindset is going to lead to destruction ultimately. So I'm showing it to you now. See, if we've forgotten God, if we've built a life that is all about us, 
no matter how beautiful it is, no matter how strong, if God truly loves us, he's going to tear it down. It's the only way that he can build something that will truly last. Now, that destruction may look different in each of our lives, but there will be some key components. Confessing sin is essential. That we tear down this idea that we have of ourselves, whatever it is that we're good people, we tear it down. We realize that we are not before the Lord good people. It means admitting weakness, right? The self-sufficiency, the, the, the feeling that we have when we look at our bank account or look at our house or the thing that we feel like we've put together, we need to admit that at the core of that, there's a corruption that it could all be lost. We need to let go of everything that seems strong but isn't, isn't rooted in him. Loving destruction is always part of God's response to human beings who think they have it all figured out. What we need to start doing is, is not resist it. Man, I spent a lot of years resisting that kind of work in my life. A lot of years just holding on to those things which I just found such identity in or purpose or whatever it is. We need to begin remembering who God is, submitting to his word, finding comfort in, in his strength and allowing the, the spirit to grow genuine fruit in our lives. We need to rejoice in his presence and turn to him in faith, genuine faith. Genuine faith means realizing that we, of our own strength, of our own wisdom, of our own moral goodness, we're, we're not getting anywhere when it comes to eternal salvation. It's only by the grace of God that we can be brought to a place of rightness, of healthiness, of strength. And that's the second, the second part of the solution. First, loving destruction, but then saving grace. The grace of Christ who came and, and was capable of innocence, lived the perfect life and went to the cross on our behalf. We have to recognize the lie of self-sufficiency, put our lives in the hands of God and realize he's the only one who can truly save us. Th that's a life where the problems, they melt away. Now, all of this can be a bit uh, uh, theological, maybe theoretical, meaning it's difficult to grasp exactly, okay, what is, what is God calling us to do? So, uh, I'm going to give, uh, I, think, I think, what is a helpful picture of, of us in our own strength and the idea that we have that we can somehow, you know, make it, save ourselves, whatever you want to say, and how actually we are we're more lost than we think. So this is a story, a true story, uh, about two men. They're fishermen. Here's a picture of them. Uh, John Aldridge is one of them, Anthony Szczynski. Uh, these guys own a boat together. They fish off the coast of Montauk, which is uh, the northern tip of uh, Long Island, New York. And uh, this, this thing, this story that I'm going to tell you, happened in uh, 2014. Uh, it was summer, July. Uh, they were going to go get their lobster traps, which are like 40 miles off the coast. They have all these lobster traps sunk there. And the way they do it is they go out for a couple days. It doesn't take that long. They head out in the late afternoon. They sail through the night. I don't know if they sail. They have a sailboat, but I don't know what you say. They boated all through the night. <laughs> And um, I don't have all the lingo. Uh, <laughs> so here's how they do it. One of them would work for the first half of the night. The other guy would sleep and they'd switch, uh, take turns in the morning. They'd get up and they'd just, you know, pick up lobster, lobster traps all day. So uh, Anthony went to sleep. John's working on the boat. And uh, the boat is on autopilot, set on the course. He's in the back of the boat. He's moving things around. There's these big coolers uh, filled with, with cold water. And he has to move them to get to hatches. So he's, he's got this tool. It's a long wooden handle with a hook. And he's 
got the thing and he's reefing on it, pulling on it hard, and the handle snaps. And we need to know about these fishing boats. There's no back to these fishing boats. So he, it snaps and he goes off the back of the boat. So he's all of a sudden in the water. The boat's going away from me. He's yelling and screaming. Everyone's asleep on the boat, plus the boat engine. He's in the middle of the water. He thinks, I, this is it. This is how I'm going to die. And he probably would have died uh, if it had been winter. He would have got hypothermia pretty quick, but it was summer. Apparently the water's warmer. And John was very resourceful. I mean, he's a fisherman. He knew the waters. He kept his head about him. And uh, first thing he was going to do was take off his boots so he could swim better. But he realized he had these big green rubber fishing boots. He realized they could be a flotation device. So he put them out of the water and trapped air and put them under his armpits, both of them. So he was floating. And he's like, okay, I'm not going to die right away. His first goal was to make it to sunrise. Okay, he made it to sunrise. His next goal was, I need to find a buoy. Because he had dark hair, dark green boots, he's in the middle of the ocean. No one's going to see him. Uh, in fact, that's the name of the book. They wrote a book called Speck in the Sea. That's what he was, a little speck in this ocean. And for us, we would think, what are you going to find out there? But he knew where the lobster traps were. So he started swimming with the current. He had a little pen knife that he was ready. The sharks were coming. He was going to jab him in the eye. <laughs> they didn't attack him, but he found the buoy. He cut it off. He had a buoy with him, a little orange thing. He found another one. He was in the water 12 hours. During that 12 hours, he heard the helicopters the whole time. They were looking for him. Finally, at the end of 12 hours, they found him. They looked down. It was their last leg. They were almost out of fuel. They looked down. They sent a diver down. They rescued him out of the ocean. Amazing. You should read the whole story. Hear the interview. It's, it's amazing. But here's what I found interesting. When they asked him about it, John said this. Look, I'm so thankful for everyone. I mean, to be saved, the Coast Guard. Anthony was on the phone. He realized, you know, my partner's not here. He must be in the water. Everyone was looking. But he said, this is what I thought was interesting. He said, you know, but I'm glad that I had a part to play in my saving. I was like, what do you mean by that? He was saying that he did a lot of things that probably none of us could do. That is true. He figured out the boot thing, right? He knew where the buoys were. He was ready to fight the sharks. He, was, he, was, he, he had a lot of skills and abilities there in the water. But the thing that I was astounded that he never mentioned was the fact that he never would have been saved if it was not for a what people outside the church might say, just a happenstance, just, just a freak thing, or what we would say, God was at work. Here, here's what happened. The whole time that the Coast Guard was searching, they were searching the wrong spot. And that's because they didn't know when he fell off the boat. They didn't know if it was the beginning of the night or the end of the night. They thought it was close to land. So the Coast Guard has this computer system, and they can plot out where you maybe fall in the water, and they can track the, the tides or the, whatever it is, you know. And so they had this, uh, this grid system, the boats were going, the helicopters were going, other fishing boats. They, were t they weren't going to miss an inch of the ocean. The problem, it was miles from where he was. At the end of the day, when the helicopter was almost out of fuel, as I said, the system crashed. And so the dispatcher said, look, guys, you better just come in. Like, it's almost dark. We're, we're not going to find him, which means we're, we're probably not ever going to find him. And the helicopter pilot said, look, just send us, just send us somewhere because we have a little bit more fuel. Do a loop, something to get us back so we can keep looking. And so he just plotted, of course, go way away from the search area, a big loop back towards the base. And that's where they found him in a place where no one was looking, but he was saved. Here's my point. I think we get caught up in all the things that we can do in our lives. We forget how lost we are. We, we point to the things that are at our fingertips, right? We get, we get distracted. We have boots. We have a penknife. We can look, look at all the work that we're doing. Look how hard we're swimming, 
And we forget that we're in the middle of an ocean and that if it isn't for the grace of God who reaches down and pulls us out of the ocean of sin, we're, we're never going to be saved. If we have that perspective, then we can live a life where we're working hard. We should be for the Lord, for the people, but we're doing it from a place where God is at the center. The Israelites, they were missing that totally. For years and years, they missed that. They had, they had cobbled together this life where they, had, they thought that they knew the Lord. They didn't at all. The message of the Bible is that that can happen to us very easily. If we forget the, the important things, that we are far from the Lord because of us, because of our sin, and that it's only by the grace of God through the cross that we will be saved. When we see that clearly, the good thing is we, we can stop swimming so hard. We, we can stop exhausting ourselves. We, we can be at peace and trust that we are in his hands and that as we go to him in prayer and confession, that, that there will be a genuine sense of, of knowing God. That things actually will be handled in control, not because not of us, but because we know we're in his hands. So my hope for us, wherever we are, it may be that, look, you've been swimming hard and, and it's a good reminder, look, I need to remember who actually is in charge. Or maybe that you have a whole life that's built and, and the person at the center is you. And that things have begun to fall apart and you've been resisting it and trying to hold it together. My hope is that you see the grace of God here in this text, that he really loved his people and so he brought a lot of destruction because he wanted them to see who he really was. And he wants the same for us. So let me pray that for us and then we'll close in worship. Lord Jesus, we need help remembering who we are and who you are. And so we're so thankful that, that consistently throughout the Bible, that's what you, that's what you tell us. That's your word to us over and over again, that, that we are lost people in our humanity, in all of our strength, all of our abilities, all the good things that you've given us that they don't, they don't add up to much when it comes to the, to the ocean of sin that we're sitting in. And so I, I pray for everyone here that you would remind us of who we actually are and the fact that, that you have reached out in grace and that it's because of your power, because of Jesus, what you've done for us on the cross that, that we can have a genuine sense of connection with you, a genuine sense of peace and hope for the future. And so I pray that you would help us in that. Help us to be self-aware, to, to not just blindly move forward thinking that we have things figured out. May we be humbled before you and also lifted up in your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.